Thank you, Kate. So it is my delight and honor to introduce our guest preacher this morning, Debbie Blue. Debbie served as the first executive minister of, of Compassion, Mercy, and Justice for the Evangelical Covenant Church from 2007 to 2015 when she retired with emeritus status. I first met Debbie in 2007. I was honored to serve on the Covenant Executive Board, and, and, and I was actually blessed to be a part of her first Compassion, Mercy, and Justice Committee. I learned a lot from Debbie, uh, and the work that she did still shapes the Covenant Church, and that shapes us as a church today. Uh, Debbie's ordained in the Covenant denomination. She has a master's in Christian education, as well as a certificate in spiritual direction and supervision. She has served the denomination in ECC churches and many ministries. She has an honorary doctorate for North Park Theological Seminary and also received the Dr. Martin Luther King Humanitarian Award and a Lifetime Achievement Award from the ECC. I said more than she wanted me to say this morning. She's a lifelong resident of Chicago. She lives in Calumet Park. But most importantly, come on up, Debbie. Most importantly, she has three adult children and nine grandchildren. That's probably the one thing she'd want me to tell you this morning. <laughs> so please welcome Debbie Blue. Thank you, my friend. Good to be here. And he's in trouble because we had witnesses this morning. And you weren't supposed to say that, those things. But I am delighted to be here with you. I was telling the, the team this morning that this is my first time being in a sanctuary and seeing real people, full body experience since March, probably 15th or whatever that last Sunday was of uh, last year. So I'm a little nervous <laughs> to be in the midst of people so forgive me if I stumble over the words. I'm used to looking at a screen and just seeing your head. So, um, But thank you so much for the invitation. Your pastor extended the invitation as he was preparing for his sabbatical. Um, and so as I said, yes, way back in April, as it got to July, I thought, why did I say yes to this? So... I'm here and I pray that um, God will speak through me. So would you pray with me? Father, we, uh, we have been through a lot, but nothing that you don't know about. And so Lord Jesus, I pray this morning as we have come to gather together to hear your word that you would speak, that I would be moved out of the way so that you would communicate what it is that you would have us to know. So thank you for this opportunity. Thank you for this morning. Thank you for your people. And thank you, Lord Jesus, for your word. We honor you and bless your name this morning. For it is in that name that we pray. Amen. Ah. Now, you heard the passage this morning. I wonder what you thought as you listen to it and then you see me as the passage talks about wives and husbands and children and slaves and slave masters. And I thought, God, you got jokes. Uh, you give me this passage? Well, he didn't give me this passage. I chose the date. 
and it happens to fall with this particular passage. So I suppose there's something that God wants me to know in this, right? But at first glance, um, as I talk with your pastor, Kurt, in reading the scripture, I thought, oh, piece of cake. It felt nice. It felt comforting. Talk about the family. It's a family affair, all in the family, all of that good stuff, right? But then as I pondered it and I reread it and reread it again and reread it again, it became a bit more difficult. I thought, Lord, what are you going to do with this? So uh, for me personally, I saw myself connected to all of the roles that Paul names, except the husband, of course. But I was a wife at one time, no longer so. I've been a child, and I have raised children, so I've been a parent. But the hardest role is not what I've been personally, but is certainly a part of my story as I come from a line of ancestors that were enslaved, in case you didn't notice, um, and had slave masters. But that being said, keep in mind, we're going to talk about that particular scripture, but I don't think the slave um, language and understanding Paul had is what we've come to know about slaves. But I want to ask you a question, and I'm not a a preacher from the pulpit. I'm an interactive teacher. And so I'm going to ask you a question. Um, and I'm going to be dating myself. You can probably tell by the hair. That's not a surprise. Um, but do you remember any of these titles? How about Leave it to Beaver? Beaver? Anybody here remember? Okay, we've got quite a few hands. All right. I got some other folks who are in my uh, camp. How about the Donna Reed show? Okay, doing good. Ozzy and Harriet. Wow, the Flintstones. <laughs> uh, the Brady Bunch, of course. What other? Throw some names out from these family sitcoms. Father you just took my next line. <laughs> Father knows best, yes. Any others you can think of? My three sons, yes. Dick Van Dyke. Mary Tyler Moore. The Partridge family, yes. Danny Thomas. Dinah Shore. You guys remember those uh, good, wholesome sitcoms? Well, how about this family that you just mentioned? Uh, we're going to show this quick clip.
first. By all means, get that important work done. You are? No, I'm in Ethiopia hunting wild goats. Look, I know I shouldn't bother you when you're so busy, but uh, if you'll just slow down for a minute, I'd like to say something. But, Betty! We can't come now, Mom. Dad's keeping us here. <laughs> what are you doing to my workers? I'm not doing anything, and neither are they. Look at them. I hope they don't get nervous breakdowns from overwork. of you may remember those scenes, uh, that scene, but um, that's the perfect family, right? These are the shows that we watched. For you young folks, you missed it. But you had the father, the mother, two or three kids, and sometimes even a dog. They didn't have a dog, I don't think, but you know, the mom, the dad, and Bud and Betty, and oh, she was princess, and I think the youngest was Kathy. This was the perfect family motif that was depicted through our sitcoms back in the early 50s and 60s. And sometimes, um, for me, even in the classroom, through the, now raise your hands if you remember these, the Dick and Jane readers. Okay, got some folks here. And you remember it was Dick and Jane, and they had a little sister named Sally, yes, and their dog, Spot. All right, you guys are tracking. <laughs> so for you younger people, just hold on, okay? But they had the house and the white picket fence, and um, some of you may be able to relate to those images and those models of the perfect family back in the day. But for me, this certainly wasn't my family. And it was quite dissimilar to many others that I, I knew in the context of where I lived. Um, I had my early beginnings in uh, CHA pro projects on the west side of Chicago. But even beyond that, there are biblical families that fell short of this perfect family model. But this portrait and this paradigm of the perfect family life or the perfect family household was the prevailing narrative for the rest of us to strive to attain this status. So I'm gonna ask you, did it work? No answer? Well, if not, why? And so I wanna just, um, do a little bit of, of looking into the text for today from the Colossians 3 chapter, beginning at um, verse 15. So you've had a quite, quite a few preachers this, um, this month or beyond speaking on this book. So you can probably tell me the context. I'm sure you've heard it 
over and over again, and the reason for Paul's letter to the Colossian church. Uh, you've also received a beautiful introductory letter from your pastor, Kurt, that um, helped you prepare for the walk through this book. But we know that, just briefly, we know that this letter uh, was written from jail by Paul. He's sending it through Onesimus, along with uh, another one of his um, brothers in the Lord. But Onesimus is is important to this particular passage because he was a runaway slave of Philemon. And again, that was in your pastor's introductory letter. He was no stranger to this church. He was part of the Colossian church. And it's interesting that our passage today connects with, uh, specifically with Onesimus, uh, his role. Uh, in, in this chapter uh, preceding today's text, Paul reminds these believers of their new life. And you saw that in the uh, kids' moment, the old life is dead, and Paul tells them to put on this new wardrobe. This, this as Eugene Peterson says it, basic all-purpose garment, which is a garment of love. He goes on, Paul goes on to... Uh, name some of the things that we, may, we must kill off in order to be shaped by God. So as we put on this new wardrobe, this new garment of love, uh, then we dispel the old self and its ways. As a result, we are to have harmony and thanksgiving, not just in our homes, but if homes look like what Father Knows Best home look like, it would be spread into the church and into surrounding areas as well of our lives. So verse 15 talks about the peace of Christ. Let the peace of Christ rule in your heart and be thankful. Cultivate thankfulness. And then verse 16 talks about the word of Christ. May it dwell among you. And we need a dwelling among us so that with wisdom we can teach and admonish, not just something for our Sunday school teachers or our Bible study leaders, but it's all of our responsibility, the whole church. And we do that through psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. But he says we do so with gratitude to God. And then we heard... Uh, verse 17, and whatever you do, you read that. Whatever you do, do it in the name of the Lord. I love that particular verse. It says, and whatever you do, whether in word or deed, so whatever you speak, whatever you do, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So you got that, right? We can do that. We dispel, we take off this old self and this old garment that's heavy and destructive, and we put on that beautiful uniform. Greg, was that his name that Greg had on? We have all those pieces of the garment, that, that whole wholeness that is humility and love and peace and patience. And then Paul goes on to say, the easy part, starting with verse 18. He takes us to a place now 
when we've done everything that you've heard about from uh, the beginning of Colossians to this point, he now tells us, okay, you've done that? Yeah, we can say we've done that, right? Oh yeah, I got a garment of love, I got a garment of peace and patience. Until we get in our home and our kids do something or get in our, our house and the husband or the wife, they're quarreling. Well, Paul is telling us, do all of this so that now you have what you need to apply it. This is where the rubber meets the road. The practical application of the knowledge that we've received for everyday life from the first of the chapter up to here, now we get to apply it. You can't, you have no excuse to say, oh, I didn't know. No, Paul has been instructing all along the way. And what is he applying it to? He now is applying it to the Christian household, looking at marriage, parenthood, and employment through slaves and masters. So he does that as he arranges this in pairs. He puts wives and husbands together, children and parents together, and slaves and slave masters. In marriage, he starts there, which is, is somewhat interesting because early on in our scriptures, in Genesis 2, marriage is the first institution that God puts in place with Adam and Eve. Genesis 2, verses 18 to 25, is about marriage. And in this short section from 18 of four, chapter 4, verse 1, Lord, the, the word Lord is used seven times. And I want to take a pause right here, because um, we can probably comfortably talk about marriage, we can comfortably talk about parenthood, but I stand before you to talk about slaves. You probably don't want to hear my perspective on that, correct? And I probably don't want to tell you, right? <laughs> but I want to put it in the context of where and why it was written. Paul gives short imperatives to the wives, to the husbands, to the children, and to the parents and then he gives greater than half of what he said about those four areas, wives, husbands, children, and parents. He gives the bulk of what he's saying to addressing this issue with slave and slave masters. I found that very curious. It's like, I don't want to go there. But Paul gives it so much space, it must be important. Well, contextually, in the Roman Empire, a third of the empire was made up of slaves. Um, they were the personal property of the owners, but their form of slaves and slavery was not the same as American slavery. So let's just put that out there. He is not talking about a race-based institution, but he is talking about a cultural way of understanding life in the Roman Empire, the place that this church existed. And so just, I, I just needed to put that, uh, insert that so that we know I'm not here to talk about 
American slavery, but Paul uses this language. Well, why would the questions asked in commentaries, why wouldn't Paul um, refute slavery? Well, Paul wasn't there to disrupt uh, the status quo. Onesimus' story is really important in Philemon in that he saw Philemon or Onesimus, he knew him to be a runaway slave. And runaway slaves could be subject to uh, death if they're caught. But Paul sends him back to his owner, his slave master. Why would Paul do that? Well, Paul did that because he knew that there needed to be reconciliation and restitution. He was not sending him back in that role, but sending him back as a brother in the Lord. So I just needed to insert that piece about slavery. And this has been my struggle with this passage for the last couple of weeks, trying to figure out how do I communicate this with my own story? But let me move on. Um, as we think about what Paul is saying, we look at uh, the context. Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands. How many wives like that, like hearing that? Um, where, is, where else is that said? And who has um, pastoral or premarital counseling and you hear that? Uh, Ephesians 5, 22, 21 and 22 talks about submitting yourself. Well, Paul is not saying submitting, diminishing the woman the household to an inferior status to her husband. And he is not saying to the wives to obey your husband. He's saying he's offering a voluntary act, a willful act of wives to submit to a husband. But why? He says because it is fitting to the Lord. So my submission to my husband is fitting to the Lord. So I'm looking to the Lord and not to necessarily the husband. But how can I submit to someone that I'm not sure where this person stands to the Lord? Well, he tells the husbands, the imperative is to love your wives and do not be harsh to them. Now, he's telling them, husbands, not to be bitter, uh, not to have an embittered spirit toward your wife. But again, going over to Ephesians, how is the husband to love the wife? As Christ loved the church. Well, how did Christ love the church? Was it just, uh, the doors are open, that's cool. Christ loved the church enough to die. Is a husband to love his wife, and it's not a love that's erotic or anything else, or I'm attracted physically to the beauty, but it is an agape love, a love that is unconditional, a love that you would be willing to die for your wife. So as, as, as husbands love your wives and don't be bitter, that imperative, then go back to the wife, submit to your husband, 
I have a leadership before me that's leading me in the way that I know Christ would lead. I have no problems submitting, following the Lord, my voluntary act to a loving leadership husband. So moving on, he talks about children. He talks to the children. And another piece is Paul is talking to the wives. He's talking to the husbands. He's addressing, if you think about the wives in a paternalistic environment, society, uh, they were less than, but he chose to speak directly to them. Children as well. They were considered, they could easily be considered the property of the father. But for the children, he said, obey your parents in everything. But why? Because it pleases the Lord. And then for fathers, some versions say fathers, others say parents. Don't embitter your children or they will become discouraged. We didn't see the dad and father knows best um, discouraging his children or being embittered. He went along with them, but it wasn't, I could think of a different way I would handle <laughs> if I walked in and I'm calling my children. Um, I would not have been that nice person that that father was. But we didn't see him embittering his children. He didn't exasperate his children. He talked to them. Um, but then it goes on to uh, that other passage about slaves. How do you, how do you look at um, the context of that language to today? Well, most common commentaries have said, consider it employees and employers. So if we think about that, translating that for today, they're given three imperatives, to obey your masters or obey your boss, do what you do from the heart. I'm not doing it to please you, but I'm doing it because it's the right thing to do. It's from the heart. And it says you'll receive the reward. And the third imperative is to serve the Lord. Serve the Lord, it says, because the wrongdoer will be paid back. And then the slave masters or the employers, justice, be right, do right, deal fairly, deal justly. But why? Because you are the master, but you have a master in heaven. And so as we think about this perfect household, this perfect home, how many of you could say you have that? I know it's bright lights, but I don't see any hands raised. <laughs> well, think about Paul's instructions for the household. Is this the secret, what he's laid out to the perfect home or the perfect family? What do you think? Yes? No? Maybe so. Well, let's look at what, what is a perfect home, a perfect family. I contend that that really is a myth, a myth. There is no perfect home. There is no perfect family. These children of uh, uh, the father know best clan, they were good kids, but they, they weren't obeying their mother. They weren't coming, in, coming to her beckoning call. Um, and if you notice, the mother says, don't bother my, why are you bothering my workers? 
were they her slaves? <laughs> um, anyway, think about this. How many of you are familiar with um, Archie Bunker? All in the family? Archie, the domineering, brash, lovable bigot, he's called, husband, the wife, Edith, dingbat Edith, kind-hearted, ditzy wife, Gloria, the daughter, sweet like her mother, but she could stand up to her authoritarian dad, couldn't she? And then you had Meathead, Meathead Mike, right? <laughs> Meathead Mike. The, he was often the sparring par partner for his father-in-law. This was far, how many of you enjoy watching All in the Family? I thought it was very entertaining. But present-day families are much different from those that Paul talks, is talking to. And the temperature, think about families today. The temperature in the household can oftentimes become so unbearable particularly as we experience this forced lockdown of 2020, we are so far from the, excuse me, from the father knows best households. Um, I, I don't know if we were ever there, but it was the model. And so if we think about um, why the perfect home or the perfect household or the perfect family doesn't exist, I want you to think for a minute with me of why Domestic violence stats, think about that. The National Coalition Against Domestic Violence reports that on a typical day, there are more than 20,000 phone calls placed to their hotlines nationwide. One example comes out of the records of the Los Angeles Police Department. Two days, just two days after the lockdown, the spike in domestic violence calls was the highest they had ever seen in one day. This was repeated a week later, and a following week, the same thing was repeated. Think about the children in the households. Sadly, many of these children are witnessing this violence and even may become a part of the violence. Then we have, in, I'm from Chicago, we have the youth perpetuating increased violence. I think I read and saw a, a number a couple of days ago that this year, 200 children under the age of 17 have become victims of gun violence. And just a couple of days ago, there were three mass shootings in six hours in Chicago. Then we have incarcerated parents. We have marriages that are struggling. I live alone. My kids are grown. I have no husband. And I think about what life would have been, back, been like if I had a family that I had to be locked away with <laughs> for 16, 14, 16 months. Um, maybe it was a father-knows-best household, and that would have been wonderful, but um, the domestic violence stat says otherwise. And then we have disciplinary uh, issues with our children, difficult relationships with parents. There are workplace issues um, with employee and employers, or maybe no work. You're, you're not able to find any meaningful work. 
Not to mention that family structures have radically changed over the past 50 years or more. The Cleavers, the Nelsons, the Andersons of yesteryear, they really are no more. But were they ever? That's my question, were they ever? So today you have the Connors and the Modern Family and the Goldbergs and Blackish and Mixish, and you have so many different kinds of families today. But I want to say to you that the perfect family and the perfect home is a myth. But the godly family, the Christian family, the Christian household, I believe is not. And that's what Paul's instructions give us. Our homes today, friends, may look different from those of Paul's day, but the instructions here still apply. The ultimate model of the perfect family that some of us grew up with displayed in these sitcoms, that's not real. But the model, the real family, is the godly family, the godly household. Not father knows best, but the father knows best. So when we honor and put the rubber to the road of those directions that Paul has given us, whatever our family looks like, the father knows best. Our home should model the Christian imperative to, and I'm going to read this same passage again from uh, Eugene Peterson's uh, understanding. He says, Wives, understand and support your husbands by submitting to them in ways that honor the masters. Husbands, go all out in love for your wives. Don't take advantage of them. Children, do what your parents tell you. This delights the master, no end. Parents, don't come down too hard on your children or you'll crush their spirits. Servants or employees, do what you're told by your earthly masters. And don't just do the minimum that will get you by. Do your best. Work from the heart for your real master, for God confident that you'll get paid in full when you come into your inheritance. Keep in mind always that the ultimate master you're serving is Christ. The sullen servant who does shoddy work will be held responsible. Being a follower of Jesus doesn't cover up bad work. And then he says to the masters or the employers, treat your servants considerately. considerately. Be fair with them. Don't forget for a minute that you too serve a master in heaven. And so as I close, friends, I close with um, this morning, just out of, out of the blue or by way of the Holy Spirit, I would say. The Lord just compelled me to share uh, this bit. Like I said, this passage has been hard for me. Um, and think about the slave language, although I recognize that this is not the saying, but it's still there. 
But as a little kid, you know, back in that day with the black and white TVs, most of us didn't have multiple TVs around the house that we could all go to different places and watch what we wanted to watch. We all watched the same thing on the one TV if we were fortunate enough to have that. And my family watched these programs faithfully. My mom and my dad and I had, um, there were five of us, two sisters, two brothers. And as I'm watching this, my desire, I wanted my family to look like that. I wanted my family to be like that. I wanted my family, maybe not to be white, but to, to live in a way that we had what we needed. Um, that there was no conflict. Well, we had plenty of conflict in our home, um, and, and I know now, you know, why. Um, some of it based on who we were. But in uh, September of 2015, I decided with my oldest sister in San Antonio to fly down, pick her up, travel to Baton Rouge, get my grandson, and we were gonna do some tours of plantations in Baton Rouge. We visited two on one particular day. The, they were beautiful. The first plantation we went into, the docent took us all around and told us about this uh, beautiful family and all that they had and the over 3,000 acres that uh, the wife dedicated to having a garden. And it was, and it was like the father knows best family, you know, the mother, dad, and two children, a boy and a girl, so perfect family, right? And a big mansion. And as we've concluded the tour, I was waiting to hear some of my story because I knew four people couldn't maintain this huge piece of property. Um, where's, where's my story in this? Well, the docent was shocked uh, when I asked, were there any um, slaves on the plantation? And she said, well, yes. I was like, really, how many? 450. But that was left out of the story. We left that plantation and we went to another plantation. This was Rose Down, then we went over to Whitney Plantation. Has anyone been to the Whitney Plantation? If not, I would really highly, strongly recommend that you do that. Well, the Whitney Plantation doesn't take you to the big house. The Whitney Plantation took us to the grounds where those who were enslaved were um, living and working. And in that, hearing the stories of these people that were forgotten all about in the first um, experience, it was all about them. And many of them had to create families. Many of them could not marry because it was illegal for them to marry. But they created families. And as a result of what these people created, I'm sure it wasn't the perfect family as they were uh, subjected to the abuse and the challenges of the institution of slavery. But in that process from this one plantation and many others over our country, what came out of that 
were the spiritual songs, the Negro spirituals, they were called. And these were, as Paul tells us, to sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs for teaching and admonishing. In the lyrics, if you ever look at the lyrics of those songs, these songs were sung together in community as they were working the fields. They were passed on to their children. They were passed on to me. I got to know who Jesus was because of them. They didn't have instructions to who Jesus was, but they did what they did for the Lord because they knew that they had a Savior who was walking with me. They had songs that they created. Anybody ever hear the tune, This Little Light of Mine? That was from my people. Um, he's got the whole world in his hands. That was from those who were enslaved, leaving us a legacy to remind us, to teach us about a good God in spite of. In that great getting up morning, they said, fare thee well, fare thee well. Rise and shine and give God the glory. And they say, I'm so glad that trouble don't last always. These were the people that spoke and taught and admonished subsequent generations, generation after generation. So when Paul talks about slaves, do what you do to the Lord, I knew my people were doing what they were doing to the one that had a promise for them to deliver them, to save them, to redeem them. And if not down here, they knew there was a great by and by. And so as we make Christ center of all things in our lives, in our homes, in our workplaces, in our churches, in our world, we come to see that the, the Father knows best. Not Father knows best, but the Father knows best. And it's for our good and the good of our homes, our communities, and our world. And so, friends, whatever you do, know that you're not going to have a perfect home, you're not going to have a perfect family, but you can have a godly home, and you can have a Christ-centered family. So whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Father, the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Amen and amen. Lord, thank you for teaching me something about my story and my people. Lord, I had no perfect home, but I had a godly home. And I know that my ancestors left me with that legacy. And so we ask, Lord, that you would penetrate your word into our hearts, that we might not be like Father Knows Best, the movie, the family sitcom, but that we would be like the family in scripture that says the Father knows best. So thank you, Lord, for this time. Thank you for your people. Thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord, for this day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.